Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome to Naked Astronomy, a space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. This season, we're tackling the big questions from our very big universe. That means that each episode, I, Ben McAllister... And I, Adam Murphy, will take a look at one of the biggest cosmic questions in the world of space science and astronomy today. We'll break down the basics for you and then pull in an expert guest for a more in-depth chat. Last month, we were talking about string theory and the hunt for a theory of everything. This month, we're looking away from particles and back into deep space as we talk about searches for extraterrestrial life. Are there ETs? Do they phone home? And how would we know? (laughs) We've got a special expert guest joining us a bit later to take us through some of the deeper details. Oftentimes when people think about SETI, they think about uh, Jodie Foster in contact with the headphones sitting next to the the very large array in in New Mexico. But before that, we're going to cover some of the basics. You know, just the really basic stuff about contacting aliens. Oh yeah, dead simple. Feel free to get in touch with us along the way on Twitter, at Naked Astronomy, or at Naked Scientists, or leave us a comment wherever you're listening. But without further ado, let's get into it. So it probably comes as no surprise, seeing as this seems to be a bit of a common theme with many of the episodes we talk about here, but hunting or trying to uh, discover extraterrestrials or life coming from the vast heavens above us has actually been something that many ancient human cultures have been interested in about as long as there have been humans. Again, I mean, it seems like every episode we start saying something like this, I guess we're just very interested in looking at space and it's very natural human of us to think, I wonder if there's any other life out there. And a lot of that early belief we're not going to dwell too much on here. A lot of it is wrapped up in uh, religious or spiritual beliefs. And then as civilizations became more technologically developed, and particularly the, the field of astronomy became more technologically developed, we started to gain a deeper understanding of our place in the universe. We came to understand that there are other planets, and then much, much later, other galaxies as well. And that completely reframed the way we thought about the possibility of alien life in the universe. And then in the 19th century, we began to have, you know, vaguely scientific ideas about what we might do to communicate with aliens. And, you know, if they don't speak our language, they might not even think the same way we do. But it was thought that one thing that might be in common is maths. Wherever you are in the universe, one plus one would have to equal two. And one idea was in the Siberian tundra to draw this massive triangle, a right angle triangle that fit Pythagoras's theorem. Yeah, it's a pretty wild idea, but it is interesting, right? I mean, the aliens wouldn't call it Pythagorean theorem if they were out there looking at Earth, but they would certainly be aware of it. I mean, they wouldn't have telescopes and spaceships if they, if they weren't aware of Pythagoras. So it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, that silly an idea, even though it may seem a little bit silly. No, they'd know that was important at the very least, and we knew that it was important. It wasn't just random. Yeah, and it's it's like uh, one of the things. I mean, again, we're gonna it's going to be a recurring theme here, but I guess you could say that that's something that would be obviously non-natural, something that had one of these like uh, mathematical theorems associated with it. So it would be a, a really interesting way to try and communicate with with a species that doesn't speak any human language. Yeah, because you know trees are hardly going to. There are no Pythagorean trees that are going to grow to that. <laughs> yes. 
that would be a bit strange. Um, and then things only proceeded to get more, I guess you'd say, scientific from there. Interestingly enough, the famed scientist Nikola Tesla repeatedly claimed that his inventions, Tesla coils and the like, could be used to pick up alien radio signals. Now, again, this was the sort of thinking that came with a more technologically advanced society. We understood that we were generating radio waves and radio signals all the time and thought that maybe aliens would be doing the same thing. And Nikola Tesla said, maybe you could use some of my stuff to do that. Um, again, as astronomy developed, there were other sort of indications that became interesting. We've talked on this program before about Giovanni Schiaparelli, who insisted that he saw canals on Mars with his very good telescope, which sort of sparked more interest in trying to detect aliens. And then, of course, there is the huge prevalence uh, that has been going around for, for quite some time, several hundred years at least, since, uh, well, I think even as far back as the 15th or 16th century, documented claims of UFO sightings. And although they are old, they've certainly become more common in the 20th century. The one of the ones that's really interesting is that one in in the 16th century over Nuremberg in Germany, where there's just there were just lights filling the sky, and the the newsprint from the time is really interesting because there's just a really grumpy sun with a face on it, surrounded by all these lights going on in the news in the in the newspapers. Yeah, that's right. And 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 so it's been a thing that people have been thinking about for a while. Like, could there possibly be aliens in these unidentified flying objects? But it really entered the cultural zeitgeist in the 20th century. Zeitgeist is one of my favorite words. I love it. <laughs> and then beyond then, you know, you've got when media became a thing that everyone consumed, there were huge amounts of pop culture and fiction and movies and radio plays and all this kind of stuff coming out that were full of aliens and what men from other planets would look like. H.G. Wells would write about it. And then in 1938, probably the most famous one was Orson Welles and his radio play of War of the Worlds, and when it was pretended that, you know, maybe the aliens were actually invading, and while the hysteria that came from that is, is overstated, most people did know it was a play, it was still a big thing that stays in our consciousness today. Yeah, so I guess throughout the 20th century, we had, in parallel, uh, astronomy tools were getting more and more developed, our science at looking at space was getting better and better, and the general public interest in aliens and extraterrestrials and them maybe having visited Earth or maybe just being somewhere else in the universe was, was ramping up as well. And that led to the birth of a whole field of science, which is called SETI for short, SETI, S-E-T-I, standing for Searches for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And these days we have a lot of brilliant tools that can help us find aliens if they're out there. So SETI isn't just one field of science. There's a load of little branching things. You know, there's, there's visible telescopes just looking out there. There's theoretical physics. You know, what would these aliens look like? How, why would they speak to us? How many of them are out there in the vast blackness? And arguably, though, one of the biggest ones harks right back to Nikola Tesla and his radio telescopes. Yeah, that's right. Definitely one of the most popular tools for searching for extraterrestrial intelligence is, as we mentioned before, this older idea to look for radio waves. Just want to give a quick shout out to our Square Kilometre Array episode uh, that, that came out a couple of months ago, where we talked about the development of the biggest radio telescope in human history, the Square Kilometre Array, and a bit about radio telescopes in general. So if you want to know a bit more about them and how they work, go check out that episode. So radio telescopes are certainly one of the most popular ways that we search for extraterrestrial intelligence today. And there are a bunch of places doing SETI work these days, but one of the oldest and biggest is known as the Berkeley SETI Research Center. We were fortunate enough to get to chat to Andrew Simeon, director of the Berkeley SETI Research Center. 
Yeah, he was great. He ran us through the ins and outs of the really cool work that they're doing there. But first, he told us a little bit about where SETI as an institute, and not just a field of science, came from. As long as there have been humans, uh, we have looked up at the night sky and wondered whether or not we're alone. That question of asking, uh, is, is there anyone out there, whether it was the forest or the, the mountain nearby or, or eventually looking into the night sky is something that has, that has really always been with us. We, we generally mark the first, what we call modern search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is really the first search that, that could have succeeded around uh, 1959, when two very exciting things happened in, in the field. One, there was a really a seminal paper published by a, a couple of astronomers, Giuseppe Cacconi and Philip Morrison, that described a way in which one could conduct a search for extraterrestrial intelligence using uh, radio astronomy that would basically show that humanity could be detected at, at interstellar distances if someone were looking back at us with a suitable kind of uh, radio telescope. And also around the same time, uh, a very famous person in the field of SETI, Frank Drake, conducted the very first uh, SETI search um, at, at wavelengths that, that could actually transit uh, interstellar space around 1420 megahertz. So that, that was really the, the beginning. Is that Drake equation, is that Drake equation, Frank Drake? Yeah, the same one. Yeah, exactly. They, they say that that's the second most famous equation in, in physics, just second only to E equals MC squared. Yeah, that's probably true in terms of people who've heard of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that, that's great. We'll get into some of those particulars of how those various searches work in a minute. But I also just wanted to clear something up because I've been, when I talk to people about SETI and searches for extraterrestrial intelligence, there seems to be like some people think of SETI as an organization. And of course, there are SETI organizations, but also SETI, of course, just stands for search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So can you sort of clear up the distinction there. I understand there are multiple different SETI organizations around the world. In the very early days of, of SETI in, in the 80s, obviously, there was a lot of administrative and programmatic organization going on. And there was a group of scientists that were largely based at the NASA Ames uh, Research Center in, in Mountain View in, in California, where I live, that were doing a lot of, of SETI work and they needed a, a home. So the, they were kind of an entrepreneurial bunch. And so they formed their own research organization in order to, to carry out SETI searches. And they called it the SETI Institute. So SETI, of course, is an acronym that stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, but the last letter is an I. And so if you make an organization called the SETI Institute and the last letter of the acronym of the first word is an I, it's very easy for people to conflate the term SETI with the Institute. Uh, and even now, when you ask many astronomers about, about SETI, they immediately think of the, the SETI Institute. And, and, and even people that, that work at the SETI Institute will often say, well, I work at SETI just as, as shorthand. Uh, but of course, SETI is, is much more than just one institution or even one, one country. It is an entire field of study. And as we sit here today in, in 2021, there are research groups uh, addressing this question based all over the world, uh, many, many dozens of different, different research groups. And in fact, now something that actually has changed in the last, in the last 10 years or so is that the majority of the scientists, the majority of the activity going on in this field is actually not at, at the SETI Institute. It's more at these other research groups around, around the world. 
Okay, so thanks for clearing that up. I just want to get like a very sort of baseline level for those who, uh, this is the first they're hearing about this kind of thing. How do you search for an extraterrestrial intelligence? What do you actually do here on Earth? Right, well, this is a, this is a great question. Um, so basically what we do in, in SETI is we imagine that if there is other intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, and like us, they have developed some form of, of technology, they're using tools in some way, and they're using those tools at a scale that could be detected at, at interstellar distances, we ask the question, well, how could we, how could we detect that tool use? And of course, one of the most important tools uh, that we use here on this planet that turns out to be very, very detectable at interstellar distances is, is electromagnetic tools, tools that create electromagnetic radiation, like powerful radars that we use at our, at our airports, radio communication systems that we use to communicate with distant spacecraft, and even in, in some cases, optical communication systems that we use to communicate with spacecraft that are relatively close by to the Earth. These tools emit electromagnetic radiation that, that leaks past our planet. And again, if another civilization were looking back at us with a large telescope, they could, they could detect those things. So we kind of turn this phenomena around and imagine if these other civilizations are out there and they're using tools like we are, then we might be able to detect them. And, and indeed, that's what we do. We use our large telescopes to look for this tool use. Now, of course, there's a, a wide variety of, of possible manifestations of technology. A lot of what we do in SETI focuses on technology that's very close to what we have developed here on this planet, like the examples I already gave of, of radio and optical communication systems. But we also occasionally think about things that are maybe a hundred or a thousand years into our future. Uh, for example, suppose we build gigantic space stations in our own solar system, and we have large uh, solar collectors, for example, in orbit around our, our star, something called a, a Dyson structure, named after a, a very famous science fiction futurist and, and physicist, Freeman Dyson. But not the vacuum person. Right. <laughs> Indeed, a different, a different Dyson. We can look for these as well. We can use the same kinds of telescopes like the Kepler satellite and the TESS satellite that we use to look for extrasolar planets to look for large structures, uh, artificial structures in, in orbit around, around other stars. So while um, oftentimes when people think about SETI, they think about uh, Jodie Foster in contact with the headphones sitting next to the, the very large array in, in New Mexico, we certainly do uh, do a lot of that. Uh, but also this search can encompass a, a very wide variety of possible modalities. Again, always just targeting some form of very large-scale tool use, some kind of technology. I have to say, my first film exposure was Eric Avari in Independence Day at the very start. That was my first <laughs> exposure to SETI. Is, is that what um, Breakthrough Listen, which is one of the projects of SETI Berkeley, is that the kind of thing it's doing? Yeah, that's right. Breakthrough Listen primarily targets electromagnetic radiation that is released from technology deliberately. That doesn't necessarily mean that the civilization is deliberately trying to signal us, but that the electromagnetic radiation being released by the technology is, is purposeful for some, for some reason. It could be a directed energy propulsion system. It could be a powerful surveillance radar that ET uses to surveil their own exoplanetary system, or, or it could be a, a directed communication being sent. To, to other other civilizations. And we conduct that search across the electromagnetic spectrum from the, the lowest radio frequencies that get through our ionosphere 
around 30 or 40 megahertz, all the way up to millimeter and even, even submillimeter wavelengths in the radio, and also at optical wavelengths using uh, a variety of, of optical telescopes, including 2.4 meter telescope here in California called the Automated Planet Finder, uh, and also a, a space-based telescope, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite or the TESS satellite. Is there any plan to use the square kilometer array for any kind of searches like this? We, we've spoken to some of the people who work on that on this program, and that sounds like a promising radio telescope tool. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that you asked that question, Ben. The, the answer is emphatically yes. And in fact, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has been a, a motivating principle in many ways for the entire square kilometer array project. Of course, having a, a telescope with you know, 10 times the sensitivity of our, our best radio telescopes now is, is naturally very, very exciting uh, for, for SETI searches. And there's actually something really very special about the square kilometer array um, and about the sensitivity that we'll, we'll actually get to when we have the full square kilometer array, is that this would be the very first telescope that we've ever built that would be sensitive to what we call leakage levels of, of radiation. When we talk about the detectability of our, our technology, um, oftentimes we use as a, as a proxy our most powerful radio transmitters. And indeed, some of our most powerful radio transmitters could be detected across the entire galaxy in the experiments that, that we do. But the reason why they're so detectable is because they beam a large amount of electromagnetic radiation in just one small spot on the sky. They focus a lot of, a lot of radiation. Like a, a radar takes a, a megawatt of power and it puts it into a little tiny dot. And what that means, if we're looking for it, is that we have to be in the beam of that radiation in order to detect it. So the probability that we might be in that beam uh, might be fairly low. But we also release what we call leakage radiation, which is isotropic, omnidirectional. It goes out in, in all directions, but it's much, much, much weaker. Well, it turns out, if you work through the numbers, that the square kilometer array has enough sensitivity that if there were a civilization like ours in orbit on a planet around uh, Alpha Centauri or, or Proxima Centauri, the nearest stars to the Earth, we could detect that, that leakage radiation if we had the sensitivity of the square kilometer array. So when you, you hear jokes about you know, listening for, for I Love Lucy or some early TV transmissions, the truth is, is that we couldn't actually detect those with our current generation of experiments, just not sensitive enough. But with the SKA, we could. That's amazing. That's, that's really exciting as a, a prospect for the future of this work. So, uh, of course, the, the universe is, is full of electromagnetic background radiation, right? So if you're, if you're looking at space with a radio telescope, how do you distinguish a potential SETI candidate signal from everything else out there? What we use is a property called coherence. So most of the natural sources of electromagnetic radiation that we see, be they in the radio or the optical or at other wavelengths, ultimately arise from the random motions of, of particles, the random motions of of electrons or, or molecules in a gas. And that causes the radiation to be spread out in time or in, in frequency. It sounds like static. If you were to listen to it, it would just sound like a shh, like just a, a hiss. Like all frequencies at the same time. That's right. Yeah, like white noise, like over a, a broad range of frequencies and not changing much over time. But technology does something very different to electromagnetic radiation. It has the ability to compress it in, in time or in frequency. So it's very easy, for example, for an artificial radio source to emit radiation at only one frequency, only one place on the, on the radio dial, just like a, a radio station that you would listen to in, in your car 
or a TV station that you might uh, tune into if you're one of the few people that still has a, a television that receives over-the-air transmissions. So we use that special property of artificial radiation as kind of a sieve. And we look for specific emission that has that high degree of what we call spectrotemporal structure or structure in, in frequency or in time. And how would you distinguish that from something like a naturally occurring single frequency, like the hydrogen line or something that's used a lot in radio astronomy? Or, or I was thinking pulsars, which are very constrained in time as a set of frequencies. Yeah, so, so I'll start with pulsars, which is a, a wonderful example of something that, that we see in, in astronomy that does have a high degree of, of coherence. Because of the, the way that pulsars arise from a, a rapidly rotating neutron star with a very large moment of inertia, it emits a very regular lighthouse stream uh, of pulses. And in fact, it's somewhat apocryphal tale, but not entirely apocryphal. When pulsars were first discovered, they were termed LGM. 001 and LGM002 for, for little green men. When those sources were, were discovered, they showed such a high degree of coherence, such regularity. It was unlike anything that had ever been seen in radio astronomy before. Uh, some, some people thought that they must be artificial. Of course, now we know that they're not. Pulsars represent one of a, a very rare set of examples of naturally occurring astronomical phenomena that show the degree of coherence that we see with, um, with technology. So natural spectral lines like the, the 21 centimeter line, although indeed they have a, a large amount of, of radiation at just a, a narrow range of frequencies or wavelengths, they are much, much broader uh, than what can be created by, by technology. So there's about a factor of, of, of a thousand there between the minimum bandwidth of a naturally occurring signal and the, the minimum bandwidth of, a, of an artificial signal. So we still have a, about three orders of magnitude of distinction on the spectral line front. The other thing, then, if we're talking kind of other signals that have come in, the one that I'd like to talk about is that is the wow signal that came in in 77. This, this was this signal that came in that someone circled a wow around as being a, an alien signal. Could you tell us a little bit about that and where it stands sort of today and what we think? As you said, in, in the 70s, there was a, an experiment at a radio telescope in Ohio called the, the Big Ear. And that experiment was conducted before the, the age of, of digital recording. And so the output of the experiment was, in fact, a, a printout uh, containing a measure of the intensity of radiation at different frequency channels. And for a, a brief moment, think about a, about a minute or so, there was a, a very bright radio signal occurring at only, only one frequency. Um, a, a indicator of technology. The problem with that is that the experiment had a very limited ability to tell the difference between artificial signals that leaked in from our own technology uh, and artificial signals that might be coming from some very distant civilization. And this is really the biggest challenge in, in SETI searches across the electromagnetic spectrum, but particularly in the radio, which is telling the difference between our own technology and, and the distant signal that we're looking for. When, when we use our own technology as an example, as a prototype for what the distant technology is going to do, invariably, we're going to have a problem sometimes telling the difference between signals from our technology and, and the other technology. And indeed, the consensus in the astronomical community is that probably the wow signal was uh, a result of, of radio frequency interference, of, of interference from our own technology. But of course, we, we can't know, know for sure. 
there has been a tremendous amount of, of follow-up uh, of this particular spot on the sky. Nothing has ever been been seen again, but we've looked. <laughs> All right. So if it's not the wow signal and it's not those LGM signals you mentioned before, those pulsar signals, is there anything currently out there? Like, what do you think is the best current indication? What's the closest to something that looks like aliens that's currently on the books? Well, I don't, I don't know of anything. If I did, I probably would be too busy to do, do the podcast. I would be, <laughs> um, you know, writing a, a proposal to use a telescope or, or building an instrument uh, of, of some kind. This is not, not exactly answering your question, but I, I'll tell you what I think is the most important piece of information that we've learned uh, that, that drives our searches forward. And that's the, the ubiquity of, of extrasolar planets. 20 years ago, if you asked most astronomers how common planets were, most of them would tell you that um, planetary systems like our own are probably uh, the exception rather than the rule. It's probably very difficult for multi-planet systems to form around stars just because of the dynamics of, of planet formation and how turbulent that, that environment can be. But of course, now we know that uh, essentially every star in the Milky Way galaxy has a planetary system and some, you know, one fifth or one quarter of them has a, a planet that might be able to have liquid water on its surface. So there's just uh, so much real estate out there that we now know for certain uh, is there. Um, and I think that that tells us that the prospects for, for life forming, if the dynamics that we saw in, in our own solar system are, are at all repeated in any way elsewhere are, are very, very great. And so I think that gives us a lot of optimism about the, the possibility that there's life. And, and I think from the perspective of, of SETI, the possibility that there could be other intelligent life out there. Well, then I suppose the next thing I'd ask is we're talking about receiving, but what, what if we wanted to send a message? What would you go about sending and how would you go about sending to something that might not resemble anything we understand? Yeah. And how do you encode that information in a way that's useful? That's always one that I like to think about. Like if you ran into an alien and you had to convince it you were intelligent, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you do? Yeah, I, I think this is a, a question that, that comes up a lot in, in this field. There's a bit of a debate ongoing about whether it's a good idea for us to intentionally signal other life if we don't know anything about them or their intentions or their capabilities. Um, I, a couple of things I would say to, to keep in mind here. One is that um, as I already mentioned, we are constantly leaking uh, electromagnetic radiation out into space. Um, and if you ask the question, well, how, how should you encode that information? Well, we're, we're transmitting information with all sorts of different types of encoding, some encrypted, some not, you know, some in the radio, some in the optical. We're portraying ourselves and conveying ourselves to, to the universe constantly and in many, many different, different ways. And so I think personally, I think if, if one did want to intentionally signal other civilizations, I think you should take a, a diverse approach to how you, how you encode the information. And we're, we're doing that by default. I, I think for me, that one of the most beautiful examples of, um, of, of interstellar communication is the, the Voyager Golden Record. I think that that was a, a, a wonderful example of how we can seek to, to communicate with, with one voice and try to incorporate as much of, of humanity as possible into a consolidated form. Uh, and I think that if, um, if we were to do that again uh, as, a, as a civilization uh, in a concerted way, I think that that would be the most important thing, would be to find a way to, to make sure that um, our entire planet, our entire human race was, was represented in, in some form. That's a, a lovely sentiment. But just uh, for those who, who might not be aware, the Voyager Golden Records, they're uh, the plates on the Voyager satellite and containing a bunch of stuff. Can you say a bit more about what's on them? 
Yeah, there's um, all kinds of images, photographs that have been taken, converted into a into an analog form, and, and encoded on the record. Music, uh, a variety of different different pieces of music from all over the world. And um, for those that are interested, you can actually find find the entire contents of the Golden Record online, uh, and can, Chuck can browse on it, there, which is pretty. Sweet. I think that's right. Yeah, Johnny B. Good is on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great. And that's what, like, one of the furthest things from Earth that we've produced. So that's very I, cool that that is out there. I believe that's right. That is the furthest, uh, most distant piece of human human technology. And in fact, we use the Voyager spacecraft as a, as a test source in our, our SETI experiments. And if your, your listeners are interested, you can go to our website, seti.berkeley.edu, and actually detect Voyager in our data in a, in a little tutorial uh, if, you're, if you're keen. That's great. That sounds like a fun thing for people to do. Uh, well, I have one more thing, uh, unless there's anything else you want to add that we haven't covered, which is we already spoke a little bit about this, but I'm wondering if you have anything else that you would, you would add. What do you think of the, the future prospects for, for SETI work? What are you really excited about other than perhaps the SKA? Um, well, this is a, a great question. I, I would say two things. Well, maybe three things. So one is, is that our telescopes are constantly getting more and more sensitive, more and more powerful detector technology across the electromagnetic spectrum are enabling us to be sensitive to a, a, a much wider variety of signals, much weaker signals than we've ever been sensitive to in the past. And, you know, that, that doesn't just apply to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, that applies to astronomy writ large. And so as our ability to probe the universe and observe the universe improves, uh, so too does the, does the opportunity for discovery of new phenomena of, of interesting things. And so I think that bodes very, very well. Another thing that I think is, is very exciting, which is this is somewhat of a controversial viewpoint, but I think that the dramatically reduced cost to launch spacecraft that we're seeing because of the advent of, of commercial space is going to be incredibly important for, for astronomy. Obviously, there's some consternation about the increasing ubiquity of, of low Earth orbiting satellites and the possibility that these might interfere with um, astronomy from the ground. This is very much a valid concern. It's something that we should pay close attention to. But if you look maybe 20 or 30 years into the future, when it becomes relatively inexpensive, for example, to put uh, telescopes on the moon, perhaps the far side of the moon, these are telescopes that would not be encumbered by um, any of the, the atmosphere or the ionosphere that, that obviously encumbers astronomy from the surface of the Earth, but also could be relatively shielded from our own technology, which would dramatically reduce this problem of, of radio frequency interference. So I think our own exploration of space is ultimately going to enable us to probe other civilizations' exploration of space in sort of equally increased, uh, increased capacities. And finally, I would say uh, that over the last decade, we've seen a real surge of interest in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. When I was a graduate student in 2010, 2011, I was kind of the only graduate student in the world that was that was working in this field. And it was it was very, very lonely. You know, now there are dozens of, of graduate students around the world and, and postdocs that are working in SETI and, and many more um, undergraduate students that are looking forward to a career in the field. And so I think that increase in, in engagement from from students and young scholars uh, is really, really heartening and I think bodes well for the, the future of the field. That's it for this month's episode of Naked Astronomy. We hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. It is really an exciting time to be alive with some of those amazing SETI prospects in our very near future. 
If you enjoyed yourself, please get in touch with us on social media at Naked Astronomy or at Naked Scientists. Throw us a subscribe or leave us a rating, review, comment, or a like wherever you're listening. You can also get in touch with us by sending a weak radio signal from the other side of the Milky Way galaxy. Thanks again for listening. I'm Adam Murphy. I'm Ben McAllister. And keep watching the skies. <laughs> <laughs>